Thanks once again for queuing up Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. Today, it is Primary Source Monday, which means that the podcast today consists of me reading something important that was written or spoken by someone who was directly involved in the history of the Beaver State. Right now, we're in the middle of going through the oral histories collected and written up by the writers of the Works Progress Administration's Oregon Folklore Project during the Great Depression. These interviews follow a loose template. The writers, usually Sarah B. Wren, Walker Winslow, Claire Churchill, or Andrew Sherbert, but there were a few others as well, have to answer a series of questions about the interviewee on the cover pages, along with the name and address of the person. I'll be reading those pages before we start as a sort of header on the oral history. The WPA, as you probably know, was a New Deal agency created by the government of Franklin Roosevelt during the 1930s to combat the Great Depression. The idea was that rather than lazily pumping money into the economy by bailing out failing banks and propping up failing businesses like certain other administrations have done throughout the years since, we'd get something for it by putting the money in the hands of people who would spend every penny of it patronizing businesses and pumping up the economy. And whether or not that worked is for the political podcasters to wrangle about, but I don't mind telling you that I approve of the philosophy, not least of all because it sure yielded some good Oregon history stuff, stories that would have disappeared entirely if they hadn't. This is one of those stories, so let's get to it. This episode is part one of a two-part series of the interview of Louis Schumacher, pioneer furrier from Portland, with A.C. Sherbert of the Federal Writers Project. Name of writer, A.C. Sherbert. January 3rd, 1939. Subject, Folklore and Social Ethnic Trends. Name and address of informant is Louis Schumacher, 1204 Northeast 53rd Avenue, Portland. Interview conducted in Furrier's workshop in rear of salesroom. Salesroom modestly equipped and occupies major portion of a single-store building. Workshop is an organized clutter of furrier's tools and implements, raw furs, finished furs, and fur garments in various stages of completion. Information obtained. Ancestry, not known. Place and date of birth, Baden, Germany, December 6, 1868. Family, five girls and four boys, Esther, Frida, Berta, Louisa, Lillian, Carl, Fred, Ben, and George. Places lived in with dates, Baden, Germany, 1868 to 1882, Walla Walla, Washington, 1882 to 87, U.S. Army in Arizona, 87 to 89, U.S. Army Walla Walla, 1889 to 91, Tacoma, Washington, 1891, and Portland, 1892 and thereafter. Education, elementary schools in Germany. Occupation, cavalry training in U.S. Army, expert furrier thereafter. Special skills and interests, interested in hiking and mountain climbing, skilled when younger. Community and religious activities, Methodist Sunday school teacher and superintendent for 46 years. Description of informant, slight of build, gray of hair, firm of feature, active, quick in movement, erect in carriage. Other points gained in interview, 
Because of exemplary habits, the informant missed the spice and color which centered around the livelier haunts of Western men of a couple of generations ago. Abiding by the tenets of his religion, he never attended a dance in his life, thumbing his Bible while others danced the Shatisha and polka. He knew what went on in Portland's early-day famous, or infamous, resorts only by hearsay, or what he could see from the fresh-air side of the swinging doors. Text I was born seventy years ago in Baden, Germany, not far from the famous comic opera town of Heidelberg. As a young lad, I thought Heidelberg was the center of the universe. I guess I wasn't far wrong either at that time, because before the World War, Heidelberg was a recognized center for the world's best artists and greatest musicians and most celebrated scientists, doctors, and teachers. I suppose that's changed now. In fact, I know it is, from what I read and learn from people who have been there in recent years. All the schooling that I received, I got in Baden before I was 14 years of age. My education probably corresponded to what be called a grammar school in this country. I'm not making too many apologies for the extent of my schooling, though, because when I came to this country at the age of 14, it wasn't often that a common jerker met an American who had very much education. Things weren't quite so easy 55 or 60 years ago as they are today. Not many persons thought it was necessary to have a college degree in order to earn a living. Most young fellows were expected to learn some kind of a trade. That is, unless they were living on a farm, and the sooner they could begin learning their trades, the better. Strangely enough, I left Germany before being apprenticed out in a trade, like most German boys are. If I had been, my later life would probably have been an entirely different story. When I am asked if there has been any excitement in my life, I have to laugh. Sure there has. I think you would have to look a long way until you found any man seventy years on this old earth who hasn't had his share of excitement. Of course, some folks run into more excitement than others. What I might call the exciting incidents of my life might not seem exciting to others who have had more exciting things happen to them. When I think back, it was even exciting coming over to America on a ship in those days. It took weeks to come across. To make it now in four days. The little ships of those times were so long on the way over, they were almost certain to run into at least one bad storm before they reached this side. And the ships were so small compared with today's big floating cities that even a small storm seemed big enough to suit anyone. <laughs> Upon landing in this country, I headed straight for Walla Walla, Washington, where I had friends. I did farm work and short-time jobs, but didn't find anything that I liked at first. At the age of 18, I decided I would like to be a soldier, so I enlisted in the U.S. Army. I was sent to Arizona, where I soldiered for two years with Troop H, 4th Cavalry. After two years in Arizona, my outfit transferred to Walla Walla, which suited me fine. I've always been proud of my four years in the Army. One exciting incident which occurred during my service in the Army, though it didn't happen to me and I had no part in it, I always like to repeat. In the 90s, Walla Walla was a wide-open town. Gambling houses and all sorts of rowdy places in operation night and day Walla Walla was a military post-town, and the soldier went a long way towards supporting those sporting places. At the time this incident happened, I was on furlough in Portland. 
On January 8, 1891, one of my buddies, a trooper from the 4th Cavalry, was shot through the stomach by a gambler named the Hunt in a gambling house. My buddy died a couple of days later. He was well-liked by the rest of my buddies, and they were so riled up over the shooting they swore to get the gambler for the last thing they did. Hunt was in the jail in Walla Walla, but some of his friends were raising money to get him bailed out. This made the soldiers madder than ever, and they decided to do something about it. Although the post commander had forbid any trooper to go into the town of Walla Walla, about sixty soldiers went to town with their carbines on their shoulders and demanded that the sheriff turn Hunt over to them. The sheriff refused to give them the keys to Hunt's cell, so the troopers threatened to dynamite the jail. The sheriff finally decided that the soldiers meant business and thought he might as well give them the key as to refuse and have them carry out their threat. My buddies took Hunt outside the jail lawn at one o'clock in the morning and dropped him with a volley from their carbines. Following the affair, the colonel of our regiment was demoted as punishment for his laxity in the matter, though it really wasn't his fault in any way. I mustered out of the army April 1st, 1891, with the rank of sergeant. I worked for a few months at various jobs around Walla Walla, after which I went to Tacoma to look for work. I wasn't able to find anything to do in Tacoma, so I came to Portland. And here's a thing that always puzzles anyone who interviews me and asks when I left Tacoma and I come to Portland. I always say I left Tacoma in 1891, and they ask, when did you come to Portland? I answer, 1892. They ask, well, where did you go in the meantime? And I smilingly answer, no place. I came directly from Tacoma to Portland. No one seems to think such a thing would be possible, but it's all very simple. I left Tacoma a few minutes before midnight New Year's Eve of 1891 and was on the train en route to Portland while the New Year was being ushered in. When I arrived in Portland, it was 1892, of course. When I got my first glimpse of Portland, it was a hustling town of probably 60,000 people or so. Sidewalks were wooden, streets were plank, woodblock, or mud. A horse car line ran the length of Third Street. The chief topic of conversation was the flood which they had experienced a short while before I came here. Portland seemed to be pretty busy, and everyone seemed to have jobs at that time, though all over the country a panic was beginning to grow worse and worse, reaching a climax in 1893. I landed the job right away, helping to build the old cable car line that used to run up to Portland Heights. When this job petered out, I got a job working on the new Bull Run water pipeline. Another exciting incident in my life, which came to me because of my army training, happened when I answered an advertisement in the paper which read, Wanted, young man, ex-cavalryman, preferred. Well, that was me, so I answered the ad. A bank had been robbed in the east, and the robbers were supposed to be hidden somewhere in eastern Oregon. I was sworn in as a deputy sheriff, and my job was to help run down the robbers and murderers. They had killed a bank official during the robbery. I went to the Dalles, and from there, with several other deputies, we left on horseback for the vicinity of Condon, where we captured the robbers. They were sent back east to stand trial, but were released for lack of evidence. Well, that ended that job, and I was once again looking for work. I wasn't very well satisfied with myself about this point in my life. 
Here was I, big strong lad, not getting any younger, and no trade learned yet. I had had a lot of different kinds of experience, but none you could call a real trade or that you could hope to build much of a future on. I come to the decision that I would have to start at the bottom in some good business and learn all there was to know about it if I wanted to get any place in this world. I also made up my mind that I wouldn't be too particular about wages until I had learned whatever trade I wanted to go into. My chance came when the Silverfield Fur Company of Portland wanted a young man to learn fur cutting. They offered me the job and I took it. I've never been sorry. The fur business is very exciting and it isn't everyone who can make good at it. It is also one of the most highly competitive businesses there are. You can either make a lot of money in it, or if you don't know your stuff, you can go broke in one season of bad buying. I worked for the Silverfield Fur Company for ten years, and then I went into business for myself. I hadn't worked for Silverfields very long before they began to realize that I caught on to the fur business quickly. Lots of crooked work in buying pelts, but it wasn't long until I could tell to a plugged penny what a pelt was worth. In 1897, they trusted me with my first really important job, going to Alaska to buy seal furs direct from the Indians. I made numerous trips for them after that, until I started business for myself. And so my future was finally mapped out for me. I was to become a furrier, to stick to the business for the rest of my days. No running around from pillar to post doing odd jobs, in 1893, with the security of a fairly good job and fine prospects for the future, I decided it was high time I got married. I had found the girl of my choice, Elizabeth Hagar, a Swiss, born in Canton Bern, Switzerland, and employed in the household of the Ladd family. We were married February 24th, 1893, by the Reverend George Bauer. We raised a fine family of nine children, all living and doing well. Christmas 1938, there were 44 of us, children, grandchildren, and in-laws, gathered around the Schumacher Christmas tree. Not bad, eh? In 1904, I quit my job with Silverfields and opened a small shop for myself at the west end of the old Madison Bridge. It was quite a struggle at first, but I had acquired a small following, and I worked hard, night and day. I had to, because the stork was beginning to camp on our doorstep and my responsibilities were rapidly multiplying. My oldest son, Fred, thought he would like the fur business, so I broke him into the business as soon as he was through school. Fred is now, I claim, one of the most expert furriers in the Northwest. My son, Carl, is also associated with me in the fur business and does a great deal of our buying and selling. I have the honor of being the oldest active furrier in the city of Portland. This has been part one of a two-part interview of Lewis Schumacher by A.C. Sherbert of the Federal Writers Project. Part two will be coming your way one week from today. All right, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. You will find the source materials for this reading, along with tons of other great Writers Project works, online in PDF form from the Library of Congress. That's at loc.gov slash collections slash federal hyphen writers hyphen project. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. 
What you've been listening to is one of our Primary Source Monday specials in which we examine the actual words of someone who made history in the Beaver State in the form of oral histories, amateur autobiographies, vintage newspaper articles, and so forth. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details of that, see offbeatoregon.com cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at finn at offbeatorgan.com. Episodes of Offbeat Organ History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every weekday morning, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. And until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. <laughs> <laughs>